Connects talks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This life science-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we're discussing Johnson & Johnson's second FDA-approved cell therapy for multiple myeloma and women's leadership in life science industries on International Women's Day. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter and Vera Kovacevic. Thank you all for coming today. So first off, I'm going to start off by wishing everyone a very happy International Women's Day. So that is celebrated every year on March the 8th, and I know that this episode is probably going to be released a day after, but happy International Women's Day uh, nonetheless. So X Talks is happy to celebrate women's leadership in the life sciences uh, by highlighting some of the female leaders at the forefront of scientific discovery and innovation, as well as, you know, we're going to talk about some of the continuing challenges of attaining more equitable representation um, in life science industries for women. So, you know, when we talk about women leaders in the life sciences, I mean, in recent years, there have been so many groundbreaking discoveries and innovations that women leaders have been at the forefront of. Uh, For example, from leading COVID-19 vaccine developments to being at the helm of the latest gene therapies. And of course, the groundbreaking uh, DNA technology of CRISPR. So women have really been at, you know, the forefront of some of the most leading edge scientific discoveries in recent years, both as innovators and leaders. Of course, in the highly dynamic, fast-paced, and competitive worlds of the pharmaceutical, biotechnology, and medical device industries, um, you know, I really think women are not just keeping pace, but are actually driving the pace uh, through cutting-edge, revolutionary um, scientific contributions. And although a lot of progress has been made, in terms of women leaders and seeing more women leadership in the life sciences, um, there are still a lot of challenges and obstacles in scientific fields that women uh, have to overcome and a lot of barriers as well, which we'll get into a bit more uh, in this episode. However, despite all of the barriers and obstacles, women in the life sciences are continuing to push old norms and boundaries to create new ones that reflect really the innovative science that they're helping to drive. Of course, with exciting new applications being developed in the areas of gene therapy, CRISPR, and RNA editing, uh, the contribution of women to fields like genetics um, goes way back. And last year, I actually published a piece on women scientists who paved the way forward in genetics. And this begins from the days of Rosalind Franklin's discovery of the structure of DNA, and now coming to recent times where we have uh, the likes of Jennifer Dudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, who won 
the Nobel Prize for their discovery of CRISPR genome editing. And more recently, we can speak about BioNTech co-founder um, Dr. Oslim Turecci, of course, uh, in addition to Dr. Jennifer Dutna and Dr. Emmanuel Charpentier as perhaps one of the biggest uh, contributions in recent times as well as she led the way um, against the fight uh, in the fight against COVID-19 with her company leading um, the way with their COVID-19 mRNA vaccine. So again, women continuing to push the envelope and uh, really uh, working to uh, drive innovations in genetics and biotech research. So the Healthcare Technology Report assembles annual lists of the top leaders in life science industries every year. And this year, the top 25 women leaders in biotechnology of 2021 was released. And on the list, there were some prominent female leaders um, in biotech. And then at the top of the list was Ian Young Yang, who was the vice president and head of global sales at Samsung Biologics, which is a leading um, contract development and manufacturing organization, or CDMO. Now, within two years of the launch of Samsung's CDO business, uh, Yang led a team that directed about 50 CDO projects. And that's, again, just within two years. So Samsung Biologics has been growing its global reach and most notably also has joined the fight against COVID-19 as it partnered with Moderna to help manufacture its COVID-19 vaccine. The list of top female leaders in biotech also included leaders from Grail, which is a healthcare company that's developing early cancer detection technologies. Um, it also included um, actually leaders from a lot of established as well as newer and startup biotechs with women as co-founders and chief of operations. Uh, for example, we have Sofia Elizondo, who heads the biotech startup Brightseed, which leverages artificial intelligence technology to detect plant-based nutritional bioactivities that can be integrated into common food items. And similar to the Healthcare Technology Report's Top 25 Women Leaders in Biotech, they also released a Top 25 Women Leaders in Medical Devices uh, for 2021. And that included uh, women in leadership roles at very well-renowned stalwart companies like Johnson & Johnson. So we had Ashley uh, McEvoy, who was the executive vice president and worldwide chairman of medical devices uh, at Johnson & Johnson, who topped the list this year. And then we had Karen Parkhill from Medtronic, and she's the executive vice president and chief financial officer uh, there. And again, it also included um, many startups. For example, we had Pacemates, uh, Noemi Ray, who is a co-founder and vice president of product operations. And uh, Pacemate is a cardiac medical technology startup company. Now, when we talk about, you know, women's accomplishments and achievements in the life sciences, um, there are still a lot of challenges. And one of the biggest is that um, there is still underrepresentation of women in leadership roles in life science industries. And that also means that 
Uh, because there's an overarching underrepresentation, there are fewer female role models and mentors in leadership or executive roles that can provide the education and support to um, women looking to step into leadership positions in the life science industries. Um, and to address this gap, uh, you know, you have we we see a lot of uh, mentorship and a lot of leadership programs that are specifically geared towards women's leadership. So companies like Blueprint Medicines have programs like their mentor program, women's leadership circle, and learning and development coaching sessions, which again aim to encourage career growth and leadership roles for women. Um, and there are also women's leadership training programs that are specifically geared towards the unique needs and experiences of, of women in the business world, and that includes the life science business world. And of course, these needs and experiences are often quite different from that of men, and therefore that seeing this need, um, a lot of universities, a lot of leading universities like Cornell, Harvard, and the University of Oxford have women's leadership training programs. Um, interestingly, I came across a recent article in Forbes that highlighted the benefit of women's leadership training programs because um, of a number of factors. So first of all, women's leadership styles do tend to differ from those of men. Um, in addition, there are social and cultural factors that uh, lead to gender stereotypes that have a great impact on the perceptions, uh, outcomes, and, and success of women in leadership roles. Uh, for example, I think we've all kind of, kind of heard of this, that you know, women who are assertive and successful may be seen as bossy or overly ambitious, uh, quote-unquote, whereas if a man has those same qualities or attributes, they're likely to be perceived as being confident and just overall successful. So this is um, what is called a gender discount that puts women kind of at a disadvantage, or not kind of, but it actually it does put women at a disadvantage in terms of how they're perceived in leadership roles. And this is a product of the different social realities between the two genders that uh, still uh, do exist. Uh, even in the West, and, um, you know, we're not even going to go into sort of different cultures around the world where women are, you know, face even more uh, challenges and obstacles that some of which we may have overcome here in the West. Uh, in addition, studies show that women can benefit from leadership training earlier on. A girl's attitudes study showed that adolescent girls are less confident than their male counterparts uh, overall, as well a study from uh, KPMG, a consulting firm, uh, showed that this pattern, pattern usually follows through to when women begin entry-level positions in the workforce as well. Uh, in addition to uh, women's leadership training programs and academic settings, and also a lot of companies have also, you know, they conduct workshops and provide courses and training um, for women's leadership as well. There are also independent bodies like Women in Bio, uh, which have initiatives like the Executive Women in Bio, um, which is dedicated to promoting, empowering, and elevating executive women in biopharma and the life sciences. And each year, um, they announce a list of about 20 to 25 women who are selected to participate in um, the organization's boardroom-ready cohort. So this is a, an executive development platform that helps fuel women's participation on corporate boards.
Now, as companies in the business world, including the life sciences, aim to foster greater inclusion and diversity, uh, women do remain a significantly underrepresented group within this diversity framework. And this is reflected um, in as I mentioned, the sustained underrepresentation of women leaders in um, science, technology, engineering, and math or STEM fields, and not just uh, women leaders, just women workers. So a U.S. census report from 2021 revealed that while women uh, make up half of the workforce, they only make up 27% of STEM workers. So there's you know a significant gap there. However, this is a significant improvement from 1970 when women constituted 8% uh, of STEM employees only, and they were 38% of the workforce overall back then. And now this gap is, uh, it becomes more pronounced for women of color. So according to a report from consulting firm McKinsey and Company, Women remain underrepresented in executive level positions, and at every step of the uh, so-called corporate ladder, women of color are underrepresented relative to white men, white women, and men of color. So, uh, I mean, despite all of the barriers, challenges, and gaps, I think, you know, today we really need to celebrate, highlight um, the extraordinary strides that women have made in STEM fields and the life science industries. Um, and the fact that we're here talking about all of those achievements and accomplishments uh, really shows that we've come a long way. I mean, you know, I just look back to the days of Rosalind Franklin when she was, um, you know, versus her male competitors, James Watson and Francis Crick over the discovery of the DNA structure and how, you know, it wasn't just about women not being celebrated for their achievements back then, but they were completely overshadowed and their achievements were even taken away from them. So we have come a long way and it's really important to celebrate, um, look at that, those kinds of histories and then celebrate the achievements of women leaders today. So eradicating gender stereotypes, um, having those leadership training and support programs for women, as well as, again, of course, highlighting and celebrating women's accomplishments in the life sciences will be key to helping support women as they pursue, as they pursue excuse me, leadership roles to help drive scientific innovations and continuing on so into the future. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on... Um, you know, International Women's Day. And I think we can even share some of our own experiences. I mean, we work at a life science media company, so we are in the industry, I would say. Um, uh, but in general, I think a lot of these principles, a lot of these um, themes, you know, they go, they're universal and they apply to a lot of different industries. I think for women, look, you know, in the corporate world and business or in any industry, I think this, um, you know, Talking about women's leadership is kind of a universal subject across fields, um, including the life sciences. Yeah, I think we all know probably at least one, and or now more than one, you know, woman who's a leader and who inspired us. And you know, thinking back to my graduate school days, like my my um, supervisor, she was a she was a professor of chemistry at U of T and she was awesome. And, and on top of that, you know, she had two kids too. And, and she was, 
she she was amazing really and she was always kind of in the top of her field so I saw that you know it is it is possible mm-hmm. you know and and for example looking at my my mother like she she finished a mathematics degree um, back in in the times when it was a little bit different especially where she was from in you know southeastern Europe so like like I think we've all had a few women in our lives in our personal lives or in our professional lives who's really like inspired us um Something that I do want to mention that perhaps some women see as a challenge, um, but that I really don't think should be a challenge moving forward, or perhaps there needs to be more solutions. Um, so something I've I've even been told or heard was that, you know, as a woman in science, like if you want to have children and like, mm. you know, excel in your career and become like a leader and stuff. I've even heard from some people like, oh, yeah, you may, you know, you may need to think about like, you know, having children or how many children you want to have. And it's just like, you know, like, why? Like, yeah, you know, why is that the case? Like, that shouldn't be um, it shouldn't be like a restriction for women. a limiting factor. kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I know there's 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 solutions like, you know, good maternity leave, um, perhaps like the other partner can take care of kids too they can they can split the maternity leave um there's you know child care options too um for hopefully a lot of women um but yeah that's that's a barrier that i'd like to bring up that i've really heard as a mm. woman in life science that i think like i just i just really dislike hearing that i don't know yeah. what you guys think but it really bothers me I can definitely relate to that um, coming from a life science background as well. And, you know, my graduate ex- uh, school experience, I would say actually was, uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of men. My, you know, master's and PhD supervisors were both men. And, you know, my committee members were almost exclusively men. I might have had the one, you know, odd woman for, um, you know, as a guest on my, not a guest, for the external examiner on my, you know, uh, final thesis committee, defense committee, but you know, I was. It was a very male-dominated um, space. But I think even within that, um, before going into the other point that you made, which is really important as well, it's also important for for men to have a role, right, as well. So, you know, throughout my life sciences graduate school experience, I felt quite supported by overall by the men that were around me. Um, you know, I, ne- I was never made to feel, oh, well, just because you're a girl or a, wo- or a woman or whatever, that you are limited by certain things. Although there was one instance, and I'll get to that. But um, overall, like they were always encouraging me to push the boundaries. And I never felt that there was a difference between, let's say, you know, the male student in the lab or, or myself. Um, I think sometimes I was, you know, even put to the forefront and pushed even more, which was really great to see. And to, to have, you know, male mentors like that and to have the male support. I mean, they are big players in all of this as well, because if, you know, you go back to history, they obviously were big players in terms of, um, you know, the status and role of women in society and how um, that played out. But uh, I think I was really fortunate to have great um, men um, in the life sciences um, who were very supportive. But uh, Vera, I remember one such comment as well. And, um, you know, it was kind of like I was 
probably 21, 20, 22, maybe. And, you know, I'm not thinking about families and starting. I mean, maybe some women are thinking about those things, you know, when they're that young. And he just said to me, oh, yeah, you know, you, you have a lot of potential, this and that. But, you know, you want to make sure that you plan things out according to, you know, in a timely way. Because, you know, if you want to start a family and this and that. And I'm just like, okay, um, are you having this conversation with your male students as well? Like, you know, so it was just it just like hit me out of nowhere. I was like, okay, what? You know? And so that was just the one odd occasion. But like I said, for the most part, I think um, men have come a long way as well. Although I've heard from other female uh, students that I was with um, that they used to hear a lot of comments as well um, pertaining these to these kinds of issues. And I think that really needs to change, of course. Yeah, I think like, of course, if people don't want to have kids, that's, that's fine. That's their own decision, you know, yes. but um, to tell someone like, oh, you know, you may have to consider your career if you want to have kids. The biological the time, clock and all yes, of that. But it's like, we all know men have a biological that, clock too, as we're yeah, learning more and more and, so, so. And most of the time, I would say more than 90% of the time, it's a woman hearing that kind of stuff. So Absolutely. Yeah, that story particularly just made me like laugh in an annoying way, yeah. not in a because I think yeah we've probably all heard that at some point in our lives as as women, um, and it's just the biggest assumption anyone can make about you, um, you know. And I'm not in in the sciences. I I actually realized from a very young age that it was not for me, um, and I made that decision. I'm like I'm creative uh, and luckily my parents supported me on that but I think just you know um, having you know been in journalism there were actually a lot more women than men in my mm. program and just one thing that I realized is that I don't want to be patronized because I'm a woman I want to be respected just for the work that I can do yeah, and exactly. just treated equally. It's that simple. It's That's really that simple. Even among other women, like we can't necessarily use like this, this day and all other days, like, oh, I'm a woman, you know, so therefore my work is, is, you know, like should be treated with more or less respect. Like it's just about equality. Like that's mm -hmm. all we want regardless of, um, you know, industry. Uh, but I love to see so many women making incredible strides like in the life sciences, because this particularly is a, is a um, industry that the future of humanity relies on. So it's only right that we have women actively participating um, and being lifted up in this industry. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's kind of like, why does my gender come in the way? You know, like, mm -hmm. why doesn't our work, why isn't it enough for our work to speak for itself? Exactly. And it is. I mean, we are so lucky that, you know, you know, some of the women that I've talked about um, um, in the life science industries that, you know, that uh, girls can look up to as role models. I mean, COVID-19 vaccines, we had a woman, a woman there, you know, who was um, at the forefront, um, you know, uh, stride on stride with her husband in partnership. So I'm talking to the co-founder of BioNTech, Dr. Aslam Turechi. And, um, and we had so many other uh, female scientists as well, I think, um, 
Dr. Corbett from uh, Moderna. So there are so many accomplishments. And then, you know, Dr. Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier for the Nobel Prize for CRISPR. It's like you have so many of these inspirational women that, you know, are doing it all and and it's possible. So I'm really happy that we have such amazing role models um, in today's day and age for coming generations of girls uh, to look up to. All right, with that, I'm going to move on to our next story, and this pertains to a new cell therapy that was recently approved by the FDA for multiple myeloma. So, developed in partnership with Legend Biotech Corporation of China, Johnson & Johnson's cell therapy called Caravicti uh, received approval from the FDA last week uh, for the treatment of multiple myeloma. Now, Caravicti has become only the sixth FDA-approved cell therapy, and most of the cell therapies that have been approved so far have been for leukemias and lymphomas. Um, so this is the sixth in the class of uh, chimeric antigen receptor or CAR T cell treatments specifically. And it's the second cell-based therapy for multiple myeloma, the second approved. The very first approved CAR T cell therapy for multiple myeloma was Bristol-Myers Squibbs abecma, which received approval from the FDA in March of last year. Now, the decision on Johnson & Johnson's CAR T-cell therapy was delayed by six months after an initial date um, of expected approval of November 2021, and this is because uh, the FDA requested uh, extension of a priority review so that they could have more time to look over the information submitted by Johnson & Johnson as part of their um, application. Now, CAR T-cell therapy is a type of immunotherapy that involves using a patient's own immune system to fight against the disease in question. The treatment involves taking a patient's T-cells and engineering them with a chimeric T-cell receptor that um, is engineered to target specific proteins on cancer cells. So Carvicti is administered as a single infusion and it targets cells that express um, the B cell maturation antigen or BCMA, which is mainly expressed on cancerous multiple myeloma B lineage cells. The FDA approval for the treatment was based on the latest data from a phase two trial, which showed that um, patients in the trial had an almost 100% response rate um, to the drug. And there were 100 patients enrolled in this study um, who were quite sick. Um, they were either relapsed or they had therapy-resistant disease. So they had um, been administered at least three drugs prior to uh, receiving uh, Carvicti. After a median follow-up of two years, 83% of the patients in the trial had a uh, quote-unquote stringent complete response, which means that cancer cells could not be detected in the blood or bone marrow. Also at the two-year mark, 74% of patients were still alive and the cancers of 61% of patients did not progress, which demonstrates a strong efficacy and durability of response.
Johnson & Johnson and Legend will jointly commercialize Curvicti 50 in the U.S. The companies have also filed applications for regulatory approvals in Japan and Europe. Now, Legend received an upfront payment of $350 million for the joint development and commercialization of the drug. Now, as a cell therapy, um, which uh, we've learned that are, um, you know, are quite expensive to develop, and so it has a list price that reflects that uh, of $465,000, and this is just a bit higher than the $419,500 uh, um, wholesale cost of Bristol-Myers-Squibbs-Abecma. Um, Johnson & Johnson, all, however, has said that it expects the therapy to be covered by most commercial insurers as well as Medicare. So, you know, experts in the, in the field say that CAR T-cell therapies, as I mentioned, are expensive to develop, but um, makers and experts say that they're well worth the price uh, because of the significant clinical benefit that they offer as highly targeted uh, personalized therapeutics. Uh, so I mentioned Bristol-Myers Squibbs has a BECMA, but its very first approved CAR T-cell therapy was Brianzi uh, for the treatment of lymphoma. And that also got FDA clearance um, last year in addition to a BECMA. So just wanted to get your thoughts um, on this new cell therapy. I think this is a huge area, um, cell and gene therapies, and I, I think um, a lot of promise, but um, I think it's suffered a lot of setbacks and a lot of uncertainties um, to get to this point. But we're finally seeing, um, you know, these drugs um, being approved for um, certain diseases, especially in the area of leukemias and lymphomas, just because they're easier to target than solid tumors. But just wanted to get your thoughts on, on this. Yeah, so it's um, approved it to be administered like as a fourth line of therapy or later. So it's approved for patients with the advanced, uh, you know, cancer and that you know, other treatments haven't really been successful? So yeah, um, Carvicti is approved for the treatment of patients with relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma after four or more prior lines of therapy. And this is just because the patients in the trial um, were relapsed or, refract or had re refractory disease. So after having failed three to four lines of uh, prior therapy. So these are the patient, this is the patient population that was studied in the trial. And so therefore the approval is for this um, subset of patients. But it will be interesting to see whether, um, and they probably are looking at this as a first line uh, therapy as well, but don't quote me on that. So yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Even as a fourth line of therapy or more that, you know, it had a, a very, very high overall response rate and the mm -hmm. stringent complete response rate, as you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. So I think uh, that's pretty promising because, you know, by the time patients get to that stage where they've relapsed and exhausted all options, they're they're really sick. These are really, really sick patients. And so it's kind of like a last 
hope type of a thing. And the fact that this showed a great deal of efficacy, I think that's really, really promising. All right, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalk.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.